You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. All right. Good after evening, noon. <laughs> um, I'm Jenny Pay. I'm from the Smart Cities Research Institute and we're all from um, Swinburne University of Technology. Um, there's just a quick update on the, on the program. <laughs> and a helicopter overhead. And the sun out there. Okay, so um, Ian Woodcock was advertised as being one of the speakers, but he has another... another is otherwise engaged in, a, in another urban planning thing that he had to do tonight. So at the moment we have myself um, speaking on behalf of interaction design and technology and human-centred design... We have Flavia Marcello. Hi, I'm here speaking on behalf of history. <laughs> okay. And we have Dan Golding. Hi, uh, I'm, uh, I guess, speaking on behalf of... Well, I'm a media researcher, so I'll be talking about, I guess, the media's influence and interaction with uh, the design of spaces and cities and futures and histories. Okay, so I'm going to start... We've, can everybody see the screen sort of? Because if you can't, you might want to shift because this is quite an imagey kind of presentation. Although the people in the sun stay there, it's lovely. <laughs> Anyone who isn't in the sun, there are rugs and please feel free to grab them. These rugs are really, really helpful. Um, <laughs> this is my third M Pavilion this, this season and it's the third one, which is 19 degrees or below, and the third one where I've had to wear a coat during the... Put these lovely clothes on and then put my coat over the top. But that's the way it is. So anybody wants to snuggle around in a rug, go for it. But, yeah, do make sure you can see the images because a lot of what we're talking to will be the visualisations and the images of, of future cities, which is what we're here to talk about. So I will start by introducing... Um, some of what we do in the smart city. So when we look at a smart city or a future city or are planning for the future as we are now, um, we have the Smart Cities Research Institute and there we are thinking about urban decision-making, we're thinking about urban mobility, we're thinking about places for living and we're thinking about infrastructure. So all of these things are part of how we define future urbanism, future cities. This is what we're interested in. So, in terms of the urban decision-making, there's a bunch of different projects. Some of this is around um, maybe getting people to, to walk a little bit more, having support for walk, of riding paths, having support for walking paths in a city. So, thinking about how to design a city and how to involve people in consultation around that. Did it move? No. Okay. So, in terms of future urban mobility, that's the other part of the Smart Cities Institute, we're doing things like thinking about autonomous vehicles. How are we going to order an autonomous vehicle? Do we want to order an autonomous vehicle? And then how do we coordinate that? So, those kind of disruptive technologies. Um, this is my particular project stream, which is Future Spaces for Living. So, and that sort of ties more... This is why I'm doing this talk today, because it ties strongly into my research area, which is thinking about what are the future spaces for living. And Flavri and I have had quite a few discussions about, well, shouldn't we be learning from the past? So what, what, what has the past taught us about being innovative for the future? So part of what this, um, part of my stream is, is having these places in which we can get together, co-design, visualise, get people from different different stakeholders, so get the councillors in, get the people who live in the, live in the suburbs in, get the developers in, get the architects in. Let's all sit and talk about what our visions and what, what our needs are. So these kind of co-design sharing spaces is part of what we're trying to do with mine. And then there's also the infrastructure and they're kind of looking at stuff like printing building materials in, with 3D printers. So 3D printing with concrete, basically. So then we come to this concept of the smart city, and I'm sure you've seen these kind of images. They're, they're urban, they've got lots of tall buildings, and they've got, some, they've got some windmills, you know, that's cool. They've got some, I don't know, nice annotations about all the clever things they're going to do. It's got no people. That picture has no people. 
So what are we talking about when we're talking about the future urban design or the future cities? So here we have another one. Oh, this has got more things. So it's got society as a little bubble and it's got a few little people down the bottom, but I think they're only there for scale. So we can see how big the buildings really are compared to the poor little people. So again, this is our smart city visions. We're thinking about this. Oh, here's another one. Oh, look, there's cars and there's people and there's, there's showers. No, lights, I don't know what they are. There's mobile devices, but it's still very technology driven. We're really thinking, okay, in a smart city, what can we do with technology? How can we make our city smart? Oh, okay. It really means how can we make our city digitised? Is, is, is digital technology equal to smart in the city? So again, are we starting... This is a common kind of view of the smart city. It's always at night. It's got blurry lights, like it's very fast and it's very nighttime-y. <laughs> Blade runnery. Blade runnery, which we might hear about later if we're lucky. So, and then we get, no, maybe, maybe we can put some people in and get a feel for that, but we still sort of overlay all these technologies over people. So this is a lot less about what people do in their everyday lives than it is about this communication, always connected. Um, what are these actual people doing and thinking and needing down on the street? So, so we move down to the street. All right, now we're going to try and get some participation from the, from the um, citizens. We're going to get them to text us and we're going to get them to get an iPad and, and slide things on the iPad and we're going to get them to interact with a digital sign. But it's still all about the technology. Now, we can't learn that from the past, so what do we learn from the past? Again, now we move into the house. Again, they've taken the people away. This is not about the people who live in this house. This is about how many things are connected to the internet. And this, you, you Google smart city and this is the kind of image you get. So where are the smart people or where are the people are, or aren't we already smart? I don't know. So then we get these, at the next level down, it's gadgety. It's, you know, what, what can we do with technology? Well, I, I kind of like the idea of wearing it. Like, I love digital fashion. I think that's very cool. And high heels that can change and have different patterns on them and, and, and suits that can measure your bio things. <laughs> <laughs> and then give you special feedback that makes you be... be but no, it makes your physio get onto you and say, why aren't you doing your exercises? But anyway, so, so we have all this nice technology. We have now we have surfaces that wrap and are curved. We have um, gloves that can allow us to uh, walk around in virtual reality with, without, with, with more natural gestures. So all of this technology, again, is moving on and we're all very excited about it. But how does it make our lives more livable? So there's responsive architecture, again, if we get the bits of the architecture moving and responding, is that going to make a smarter city? Is it going to make a better future? We have gardeny cities now because <laughs> we pulled down all the garden to put the city there, now we've put, to put the garden on top of the city or somewhere integrated with the city. But, but there is a population issue here, we can't probably keep all the beautiful gardens and fields. So again, that's something architects are struggling with. And then we have then this layers of future cities. So we start to get into these visions of a future city that has multiple, it has flying things and layers of things. And, and now we're getting a little bit into, back into Dan's realm of, of the science fiction and how did they envisage the city? And then we start to think, okay, now, now we're getting sort of, uh-oh, we haven't been very well behaved with the planet. Oh, things are going underwater. Oh, let's make floating cities. That'll be great. That'll help us. So then we start to get these visions of a future city that is now floating. And one of my favourites is this one. It's so pretty. <laughs> what are they called? Um, the same name as the... can't remember. No, it's the same name as that Arduino thing that you can... Flora. I think it's called Flora's or something. But it's just these... Are, then we get these multiple floating cities to try and take the pressure off of the land or to try and replace land that we've done other things with. So it's kind of a, a nice uh, vision of what 
what could be a possible future. We can, we can start to use the oceans as extra real estate if we need to. So that, I'd like to leave you with those kind of techo visions and put you back in the past with Flavia, who's going to represent history. Right, so I guess I'm talking about dumb cities if you've been <laughs> talking about um, smart cities because they're... So what I'm going to do is just going to give you a bit of a rundown of how human beings have envisioned cities previously and we might see some connections with some of the examples that I've given about past visions of future cities and how they might connect with what Jenny showed or what, how they might connect with our actual experience of today. So my question is, if place is so important, why do we keep searching for no place? Well, what do I mean by no place? Well, that's where the word utopia comes in. So we all talk about a utopia. We all talk about something that is perfect. But if you actually look at the word utopia, it actually means no place. So it was invented by the 16th century um, lawyer, writer, statesman, satirist, if you like, called Thomas More. And he actually wrote a book about utopia. And his book was misinterpreted as an idea of a perfect society, whereas what he was actually doing when he was talking about this perfect society in the 16th century, he was actually partly satirising society. And he called it utopia because he intentionally wanted people to be confused with the idea of e-utopia meaning a good place and utopia being a no place, saying that that ideal that we all... Um, imagine would be a city is actually something that cannot exist. So then I wanted to kind of come up with the idea of if we search too much for a utopia, do we end up creating some kind of dystopia? And so you can probably recognise some examples of Black Mirror who have a, that television series that basically has the dystopian view. If, if you have all of these cities that Jenny showed, what is the dark side of it all? So I'm going to then like rewind right back now to the 5th century before the Common Era and talk about a man called Plato. He's the one in this painting. This is a contemporary painting to um, Thomas More's Utopia from about the 1520s. It's in the Vatican Museum. And it's called the School of Athens. And it shows all these philosophers having a bit of a chat. And in the middle, in the pink, is Plato. Uh, and so Plato is pointing to the heavens because he's talking about the ideal world of forms. So Plato had a theory that was actually revived in 16th century Italy that the world that we live in is just a shadow of an ideal world which is somewhere else. And in his book, The Republic, they talked about an ideal city, a, a city called Callipolis. And they basically, all these philosophers sat around at the table, a bit like academics do, and say, well, if we wanted to make an ideal society, what would, what would it be like? How would it be organised? And what's interesting, actually, about um, Callipolis, which is this um, city in the New Republic, is that it had a lot of kind of conflicting ideas. So some of the ideas were a little bit like the communism of property and the abolition of the family. So one side of it, it basically sounded a bit like a hippie commune, like the hippie commune I grew up on, actually. But the other thing that it had, it had very tight control of every aspect of life by a philosophical ruling class. And the idea of a maximal unity of thought and feeling among citizens, which sounds to me a little bit like a totalitarian regime. So Plato's new um, Republic has quite interesting idea is that, yes, you want to do all these new and radical things, but there always has to be an element of control. And so then we might think about how much control then we give over with all of these digital gadgets and all of this digital identity stuff. So we're all free to innovate and have all these sharing economies, but then um, in contrast to the sharing economies, we give away a lot of control. So moving on to then what was happening in the Renaissance, the idea of um, creating these ideal cities 
was about the concept of order, was that the Middle Ages were a chaotic and crazy time of history, and in the Renaissance, what we wanted to do was create order and reason. So you can see on one side is the city of San Gimignano, which is a classic medieval city, and then some utopian ideas about how cities should be organised. Now, none of these really were about people, Jenny. Um, they were about architects just writing theoretical concepts of what cities could be. And what these cities have in common if they were all fortified cities... So they're all about military cities, about how to move military around. And you can see that they had two main forms. One was a grid-type form and one was a radial form. And what was then so fascinating, seeing all of Jenny's examples, is have a look at how many of them actually are shaped like these theoretical 15th century cities written by Italian architects. So here's another example actually from the 18th century, this is an, an ideal city um, by a French architect called um, Ledoux, um, which they partly built, but they didn't um, build. But it was basically a, an industry town. It was a salt works. And then the other radial city, the one which has really had the biggest impact on the Anglo-American world, is Ebenezer Howard's Garden City. So uh, basically saying, well, you want all the benefits of being in the city and all the benefits of being in the country and you organise a garden city. But then what you end up getting is suburbia where you have neither of the two benefits. The idea of a radial city was also um, come up with in the 1920s by a guy called um, Bruno Tout. Um, and he had this whole idea of hierarchy in the city where the most important things were in the centre and then as you moved um, to the outskirts, things were less important. Um, but what's in here is this whole idea of mobility. And so Bruno Taut was really interested in how people moved around the city. So your mobility stream um, comes into it there. Um, but his idea was that people were grouped. So people who have the same tempers, people who have the same beliefs will always live in that same part of the city so everyone will always get on. So, yes, so this was his um, image of the city that was called the Stadtkrone, which was, the, you know, the crown of the um, state. And it had all of these um, big buildings in the city. It was always oriented towards the sun. Um, there was a huge... Um, impact, oh, sorry, there was a huge importance placed on culture that in the centre of the city you need to have, you know, an opera house, an art gallery. So all of the cultural stuff had to be collected together like we have actually just <laughs> right across the road. Um, and you need to also have um, lots of parks and green space around. Um, libraries, museums, but then they all have to be connected to cafes and restaurants. So he was interested in creating spaces where people of like minds could get together. So the city had to provide all of that. And that was his vision for it. The other city type is the um, grid city. And the grid city was most influential on um, an French-Swiss architect called Le Corbusier, who came up with the Radiant City. And, you know, if you think about the tower blocks of housing commission blocks rising up in the middle of now what's Fitzroy, well, there you go, there's um, Corbusier's Radiant City. Um, what was quite essential to Corbusier's plan was the whole idea of um, densification, having lots of people grouped in one and then having shared open space for everyone. But the other thing that was really crucial about Corbusier's work is that he was very much into zoning the city. He said, right, everything that's industrial goes in this part of the city, universities go in that part of the city, residential is in this part of the city. And so if you actually have a look um, closely at the plan, he actually decides what goes where. So housing in one spot, hotels and the embassies, business districts, satellite cities. So I'm saying all of this to you and you're going, well, yeah, isn't that obvious? Isn't that how cities are? But cities are like that because people like Le Corbusier were sitting down and deciding this is how cities are and this is how we need to group stuff. So think about um, Bruno Taut having a social concept about how people are grouped together 
and um, Le Corbusier having a very functional concept about how people are grouped together. So here are some images of, um, these are actually Corbusier's own sketches of that. Another architect who also had an idea of um, how to organise cities and plan cities was Frank Lloyd Wright. So Frank Lloyd Wright had this whole idea of a new freedom for living in America and he had this kind of manifesto that you can see there. So he's had a sort of um, more socialist aspect to it, um, this whole idea of, you know, um, no landlord or tenant, no private ownership, um, no tall buildings. So the opposite of the radiant city, which was this whole idea of there's lots of tall buildings, is... Um, Frank Lloyd Wright wanted to spread out everywhere and have, but again, have everything very, very clearly organised. So, you know, the county seat somewhere and stables and paddocks in another spot, um, machine-age luxury houses, interior parks, music gardens. So um, what's, I think, interesting about Frank Lloyd Wright's plan is that there's this whole idea of the social in there, um, the practical aspect of zoning, that zoning has to be done from a functional point of view, yet he wanted to make sure that everything was flat and broad. And he also had flying cars. Um, <laughs> so he was into this kind of future. So this is from 1951. This is a 1951 plan. And then the last example I'm going to talk about is the whole idea of the city as an organism or the city as a body. And again, we're going back to the Renaissance. Here's this, um, this other guy, um, um, Francesco di Giorgio Martini, one of the um, treatise guys, who said, well, the city is like a body. And you can see that here's this anthropomorphic concept of the city. So the fortress part is the head. The heart is the um, church, so the idea of faith and ritual. And then the actual um, governing of the city happens in the belly. And one also very futuristic example of this whole idea of a city as an organism is uh, Archigram's plug-in city. So this is from the 1960s. Um, and it was this whole idea of this very kind of visionary creation by this group called Archigram. Um, so it's kind of a megastructure. And in this megastructure, there's residences, access routes, essential services. And basically what the plug-in city did is it literally walked around. So it's, imagine a, a caravan where you have everything you need for one family. This was like a city, as big as a city, and it also walked around. And when it ran out of energy, it plugged in somewhere and got its um, energy and then got rid of all of its waste and then walked around and settled somewhere else. So a little bit like your floating cities, but these ones were actually walking around the place and plugging in. Um, and here's another um, example of it. So Archigram never really built all of these things. They just published them in the issues of a magazine. And their idea was actually going against the functionalist concepts that Le Corbusier and Frank Lloyd Wright came in, functionalist as in, you know, you divide things according to function. They really actually just wanted to chuck everything together and have this sort of nomadic alternative to traditional ways of living. Um, and they wanted it to be mobile, flexible, impermanent, and most of all, liberating for, for the human. So that's my little overview of um, future cities from the 20th century, and now I'll give over to Dan. I think the, the key thing there too is your last words, which is ways of living. So, so in all of this, it's about living and how we live and how we want to live. Oh, I don't know how I did that. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yep. Okay, so yeah, uh, as I mentioned, I'm a media researcher and I often teach kind of uh, cinema, I suppose, uh, and screen studies in general. So, but that has a really, really key relationship with imagining the city in general. Uh, and so when I kind of mention the idea of imagining the city in general, you probably have a handful of films that come to mind or a handful of TV shows. I would suggest most likely dystopias uh, is the first thing that you go to. Blade Runner's already been mentioned. Perhaps not ideal cityscape environments of the future. Uh, one that I've uh, 
begun with here, um, probably some of you have uh, seen it, uh, the Alfonso Cuaron film from 2006, Children of Men. Uh, Cuaron uh, won Best Director last year at the Oscars for Roma. He's a, a fantastic Mexican director. This is imagining a future London, uh, and it is horrifying, basically. Uh, it is uh, extremely dirty, it's extremely violent, uh, it's kind of a future police state, uh, kind of all of the things that you would not want in the future, I suppose, but it's kind of imaginable. It's uh, conceivable, I suppose, based on the world that we currently inhabit and the kind of cities that we currently inhabit. And this is common in terms of how cinema in particular imagines the future. Uh, and in fact, uh, Mark Fisher, who was a sometime academic, sometime film critic, wrote a really great analysis of this film where he basically reiterated a quote which is often attributed to a bunch of different philosophers, but basically that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. <laughs> and so Box, that this perhaps. film, so, yes, right, yes, exactly. So, uh, and that this film kind of, you know, essentially plays out that, in other words, it's much easier to imagine the city's and the problems that we currently already have just getting worse. And this is what these films often do. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the less common version of these cities where it's kind of a little bit more utopian. This is the kind of image that you would perhaps more associate with a utopian city. This is from a 2002 Steven Spielberg film called Minority Report. And this is, uh, I think, a really interesting example. It's the kind of cityscape, that is, as I said, that you might imagine. It's got these, you know, amazing self-driving pod vehicles, I suppose, and uh, roads that sort of go everywhere. In a way, kind of reminds you of uh, Metropolis, the 1927 for its slang uh, film, which, uh, you know, is, I think, one of the enduring early imaginaries of what a futuristic city would look like. A lot of people, I don't know if many of you have seen Metropolis, it's a fantastic film if you haven't, uh, but a lot of people forget that it's not just about imagining the future, but it's also about imagining a kind of labor rights uprising in the future. So again, kind of dealing with, with different, uh, different imaginaries and how people live, I suppose, in cities as apart from anything. But the thing that's fascinating about Minority Report is, uh, so as I said, this is 2002. This is before a lot of the technologies that we use today that we take for granted, like smartphones, touch screens, uh, even social media, right? As kind of almost technologies of the city. This film has a lot of that. So you can see here Tom Cruise has gone into it's a gap. Uh, and he's being confronted by someone who, uh, it, you know, a digital advertising device screen uh, that has read his iris and has remembered the last time he's come into Gap and is trying to sell him a product based on that, right? So basically personalized advertising is being built into the city. Screens are everywhere in this film. And this is, you know, before uh, a lot of the screens that we have today, touch screen technologies in particular are everywhere in this film. And how did Spielberg so kind of accurately predict a lot of the technologies that we have today? Well, quite simply, he held an academic symposium <laughs> in pre-production for this film. He got a lot of researchers together who, you know, uh, like Flavia and Jenny, research the cities of tomorrow and the technologies of tomorrow and uh, got them to basically, over three days, create a, a plausible future. This film is set in the 2050s. Um, there's also a little bit there about predicting crime using psychics. Obviously, that's not so much plausible, but there we go. Uh, the rest of it was basically, there was like an 80-page production Bible, as they call it in filmmaking, that was drawn out of this plausible academic research of the time. And so because of that, over the course of the film, we have smartwatches, we have self-driving cars, we have uh, all sorts of uh, touchscreen devices. We have all these technologies which actually already have come to pass. And that's because, or are coming to pass, I suppose, in the case, some cases, that's because of this concept that we call science fictionality, or that a researcher called uh, Istvan Chisre Rone has called science fictionality, which is when it becomes this cycle where researchers create plausible futures that are used in films, films then inspire, uh, then inspire technologists and entrepreneurs to invent those futures. The person who created that production Bible based on the academic research said that the film Minority Report became a kind of a shopping list for startup 
uh, CEOs, you know, at the time, that they were sort of like, yeah, okay, great, uh, self-driving cars, let's see if we can make that happen. Smartwatches, let's see if we can make that happen, right? And so it kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy by this imagining of the future in this, in this media context. Um, now, the other person that I kind of want to tell you about here in this, this context of... Uh, uh, self-fulfilling te uh, technological futures is Walt Disney. Now, you will recognize uh, Disney, of course, uh, from, you know, the Disney company being the, the most powerful uh, force in the universe at the moment in terms of uh, the media industries. But uh, D Disney himself, I, yeah, should I stand in front? When, when this guy gets to yep. start okay, so I should stand in front? Yeah, uh, like maybe on the other side. Okay, okay, cool. Face you, okay, cool. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, Disney himself was obsessed with technology. In his animations, you can see, uh, you know, from Snow White, right, he used rotoscoping, which is he actually shot people moving uh, in real life, real people, which is how he created that movement because he got his animators to essentially trace the movements, right? And so he was, a, you know, his key obsession was kind of bringing movement to life, making the impossible possible, I suppose. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and, you know, part of that played itself out in Disneyland. Disneyland is an attempt to animate reality, right? To take those same techniques and, you know, through the audio animatronics, I don't know if any of you have been to Disneyland, but if not, you've probably seen a thousand parodies of it. It's a small world in The Simpsons or whatever, right? These audio animatronic creatures that move, uh, you know, as such a fundamental part of Disneyland. And that is, you know, part of this technique, I think, the same strategy of trying to animate reality using these entertainment industry techniques in the real world. Now, as you can see from this map, sorry, just one moment, as you can see from this map as well, it is kind of divided up a lot like the images that Flavia was just showing us in terms of the city being having a very specific use. There's Fantasyland, there's Tomorrowland, right? Uh, Main Street, and they're all kind of built around this central, you know, the, the Disneyland castle, which Disney and his uh, Imagineers, the, the theme park designers, call the weenie, which is the central object that you can see at all places, and it orients you around the heart of the theme park. Um, yes, thank you. Um, and so, here's the thing, right? Disney's lifelong interest in this manifested itself in... Uh, what he was trying to do at the time of his death, it was just kind of, he filmed a promotional video about this a couple of weeks before he died for Epcot, which was the experimental prototype community or city of tomorrow. And he was going to build this. This is, of course, some of you may have been to what is now Epcot today, which is quite different. I'll talk about what that is in a moment. But he, uh, it was to be a city. And it was to be a city much along the lines of these imagined... Uh, modernist, you know, he imagined it to be in a bubble, which sounds quite something, but this is what Disney was uh, uh, kind of, you know, planning, this onion-like city with, exactly as Flavia was saying, with uh, the, the most important parts at the centre yeah. and the industry right at the, the edges, right? And so, and that everybody would also move around on these kind of monorail, uh, they were called Wedways, W-E-D ways, because uh, that was his initials, Walter Elias Disney, Wedways. So the very transport that he, you would use to get around the city was named after Disney himself. So possibly a little megalomaniac uh, going there. In fact, the Disney Corporation did actually build a, a, a little village in um, Florida, outside of Florida, called um, uh, Celebration had a population of about 7,000 people, still exists today, but is no longer owned by the Disney company. But Disney did own the land and raise taxes and built, you know, run the roads, etc. Anyway, if you ever, I always thought a murder mystery would be fantastic to set there. But, you know, if you want to be sued by the In Disney Corporation. Um, and you will get sued. Yes, exactly. Um, but what we end up uh, in actual Epcot is this space that shows future possibilities, future ways of living. Right? So you'd have the plastic house here that was, I think, sponsored by Monsanto. Uh, and that would show things like microwaves, right? And like future domestic technologies and ways of living at Disneyland, at Epcot, as it currently exists as a kind of, you know, a vehicle for the world of tomorrow. Yeah, and this way, this, you know, this logic, I think, moved from the entertainment industries to real 
urban planning. You know, with John Jurd's designs here for this is the Universal City Walk in Los Angeles, where we have this entertainmentizing, I suppose, of public space. Um, you know, this is kind of half theme park, half attraction, half shopping center, thank you, to then Times Square, which was, of course, rejuvenated in the 1990s. Largely why? Because the Disney Corporation wanted to open a Disney store there, and that was one of the huge forces that animated Times Square from being this kind of really dangerous, dingy place to being the, the really, you know, prime tourist-themed attraction that it is today. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, gosh, the... Uh, uh, in uh, Vegas, uh, again designed by John Jurd uh, as this Fremont Street, uh, Fremont Strip experience, which is again just blurring the lines between entertainment district uh, and kind of urban living, I suppose. So I have one final example, and then I'll stop, to show the other side of this kind of inspired by science fiction, inspired by entertainment, and inspired by film uh, ways of living uh, and the future. I don't know if this seems familiar to anybody. This building is uh, part of, it's actually uh, was run, it, I don't think it's used anymore, by the NSA. So the American uh, surveillance, you know, uh, sorry, the American Security Organization, Federal Security Organization. Uh, well, no, but it's their security, so it's their surveillance, one of their surveillance centers. This is called the Information Dominance Center. If you Google it, it'll come up. Uh, and it was built by them, uh, and this is the architect that made this design. They published their designs on their website. This is, you know, freely available imagery of what it looks like on the inside. Um, I don't know if it reminds you of anything. We can... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, well, it's okay, you can leave it on that one. So basically, uh, this, and you can see by the CRT monitors, this is built in the early 2000s, but this is not a coincidence. This was built to designs and demands from the, 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 the general who is in charge of building the Information Dominance Center to make it look like the bridge of the Star Trek USS Enterprise, complete with doors that go <laughs> at the back of the room. No joke, they really do. There's interviews with uh, a person who was in charge of showing in dignitaries to this area, uh, and he said everybody wants to sit in the main seat and uh, pretend to be uh, Captain Picard. <laughs> So I just kind of find it amazing that not only is our kind of ways of living in our, you know, our uh, cityscapes uh, shaped by the entertainment industries and has a really close relationship with films and how we see the future, but that actually even our uh, uh, government agencies and you know, uh, surveillance uh, industries are totally, totally part of the same kind of entertainment discourse. Anyway, uh, I'll leave it at that, yeah. Thank you, Dan. Um I really want to know if the ksh yeah. is an audio file or if they <laughs> made the air do it. Yeah, I don't know. They should, I don't think they've got that detail on the website, but I'd love to know as well. The yeah. dominance room uh, just has this audio a person file. Who just yeah, went those thoughts at the oh, back. Oh, yeah, hire yeah. a person to sit there going, ksh, <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Okay, so um, thank our speakers. <laughs> Me too. Okay, we can now open the floor up to some questions if you would like to either give your ideas or your opinions about this or um, ask any questions of our, of our illustrious speakers. I already asked my question. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, gauging from uh, what you presented so far, there's a lot of... Um, more, more of a dysfunctional or maybe dystopia kind of concept, and there's some good one uh, from the movie, I assume. And, and um, what is your, is there anything in the history that that you you pick that that's actually, you know, more likely that is good that that is that we can take on as a something, something more valuable. So, from my point of view, Flavia, it's that picture of the city with the heart and the the, the anthropomorphic city. That, that, that one. Yeah. <laughs> Have you got more comments about that? Is that finding its way into our modern urban planning systems? Well, I mean, it's an anthropomorphic city, but it's still really based on 
only like three. It's not really about people. It's just using the human body as a kind of metaphor. It's actually um, about government, about religion, and about defence around war. So it's probably, you know, all... Human-centred. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's the idea that, you know, you need to have the head as the citadel, so you need to make sure that you're defended against enemies. Um, the, the church is... And it was only one church and only a Christian church, so that's not very good for um, any kind of global multi-faith society. And then the idea of government and control. So there doesn't really, there's not really any people in it. The people are either following a faith, um, fighting against each other, or being controlled, so um, that really doesn't have in it. But, I mean, you know, you saw all of the things that I showed. I mean, they have been realised, but um, some things work and some things don't work. I mean, um, but I guess what I want to... Another thing I wanted to say about these things is that um, imagining the impossible is actually quite important for then being able to go back to the possible. So you need to... If you only just tried to do what was possible, things wouldn't change. So these utopian visions or these visions of the future are all about going beyond the realm of a possible. And then you can, re you can then have your reality check and rewind back to um, the possible and move forward with it. So they may seem like crazy things and crazy ideas, but you need to actually go out there with the ideas to then come back. And I think that that's really the maybe the one lesson that you can take from these historical visions is that always go beyond thinking beyond the box of the possible to then rewind. Yeah, and I think um, it's very interesting what Dan said about Minority Report because I've actually heard a scientist from MIT talking about how he invented his latest see-through double-sided screen and he said, I saw it on Minority Report and we sat down and said, how can we do this? And so, so this interest in science fiction informing science and then, and then the other way around is very, very interesting. Yep. Yeah. yeah, no, I to totally agree. I think, you know, despite the fact that a lot of those uh, science fiction films uh, portray future technologies and future livings as, as problematic or dystopic, there are elements that I think are... are truly about just imagining how would we live what's almost like a best case scenario or at least an attempt at a best case scenario which is then tried to be manufactured into some kind of possible uh, reality. So I, I think there are, yeah, there's a negotiation. And, you know, human society is always in some delicate balance between order and chaos. Um, and so if you think of chaos as the dystopia and order as the utopia... If you just, you know, if you look at, I mean, I, and I look at the development of cities and the, and the history of architecture from, you know, 30,000, you know, years ago. It'll look at, you know, how indigenous people in Australia organise themselves and the land with the, their settlements and their architecture. So, you know, when I, when I teach the history of architecture, I teach from 30,000 before the common era all the way to today. And the what comes up again and again and again is that this kind of contrasting aspect of human beings is that, that we, are, we are chaotic and we are crazy, but we also somehow crave order. So there's this, always this kind of oscillation between, you, you know, you've got all this chaos and you try to put order on it and the order's there for a little bit and then it becomes chaotic again and then you try and put order on it again and then it goes crazy chaotic again. So, you know, these, these future visions that Jenny was showing was all actually about, oh, we've got this chaos now, how do we, how do we find the order? So you just, you know, history is just a whole bunch of cycles and then you show it also in, in films how then films also build themselves into the cycle of history as well by predicting a future which then becomes a future which then moves into a future again. Yeah. But history never <laughs> repeats. That's right. <laughs> I tell myself before I go to sleep. That's right. For those of you who were here <laughs> around in the 80s. <laughs> um, any other questions or comments? Yes. So I'm surprised in a way that you didn't bring up Walter Billy Griffin on the basis of the Canberra experience. And 
in sort of thinking that one into the, what you've been talking about, I'm wondering whether it's actually that the human scale is that, you know, in business units we talk about 100 people and then you actually need to be a different business unit because you can't actually work with that. I think of the village and where you set up because of food, food environments and so on. And whether it's in fact that, we, that power authority and power and that need to actually organise for one person to be in control is actually what we're talking about and human connection, to go back to Jenny's point in the first place, the missing humans. When you add humans um, to a, a design, you have to think about the scale of connection and human interest. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't mention Canberra for questions of time, um, but... Uh, yeah, well, it's... Yeah, um, I think maybe it's it's basically the idea of there's order up until a certain point and then once you reach that tipping point, that's when you get the chaos because you lose control. Cause, uh, you know, but um, Canberra is really all about um, poles of control or, you know, and, you know, the, the, the Burley Griffins were eugenicists as well. I mean, they had all sorts of kind of ideas of perfect races of human beings and they thought that anyone who wasn't perfect shouldn't actually, you know, be allowed to live. And so they had all sorts of kind of wacky ideas around that as well. And so um, it, I think it's that a, a perfect um, illustration of that delicate balance, that order chaos balance. So, you know, until you can actually have control of people you can control them up to a certain size and a certain amount of people and then once it gets bigger. But the other thing is that there can also be order in chaos. I mean, I just, I just got back from Rome and, you know, Rome, you, you drive around Rome and no one's really following the rules of the road rules. But the thing is, it's okay because nobody is and everybody knows that nobody is and so that's the order. So it, you're driving and you think you're driving in chaos, but because you know that anyone could do anything at any time and that means that you can also do anything, it somehow works. So, you know, there is that other side of it. Um. So Carlo Ratti, when we, were, we had him over for a smart city thing in the M Pavilion last year, and he had this scheme to just take away all traffic lights, just take them all away, and he, and he said it will work that the self-governing of the traffic is actually going to work better and more sustainably than our current system of traffic lights. Because people will communicate with each other. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So there's been less accidents on South Bank when, uh, since they've taken away the, the, the formal... Don't quote me, but <laughs> I'm quoting me. Um, <laughs> you can sue me. Um. Walt Disney will sue you. Yeah. yeah. No, he can't. He's frozen. Or is he defrosted now? I've lost track. But you can see why those myths emerged from, you know, this moment at, towards the end of his life where he really was planning a city in a bubble. Like, that's not a joke. Isn't there so, a movie with a city in the bubble with Jim Carrey in it? Yes. Oh, no, no, the no. Truman Show. Yeah, Truman yeah. Show. Yeah. Well, it's a city in a set. It's his life oh, okay. in, a, in a film set. But yes, yeah. Um, I've got a question for you. Do you know if um, Walt Disney went to the New York World yes. Fair of 1960 and uh, saw the world of tomorrow there. Yes. Yeah. In fact, he contributed to the 1964, the, the New York one. He brought his audio animatronics, so those, the, the um, robots, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, if you've been to Disneyland, um, you'll see the, the um, great moments with Mr. Lincoln, which is where Abraham Lincoln sort of is animated, an animated robot and gets up and sort of gives you a, a bit of a lecture. Uh, and now that's transformed today. So there's the Hall of the Presidents. There's every single pres president uh, in the hall, including the last two are actually voiced by their, by o o Obama and Trump voice themselves uh, in this hall. Uh, in fact, the, the Trump one is, a, well, it's, a, <laughs> it's they, disturbing. They didn't, they didn't quite get his likeness right. It's quite horrifying, actually. If you, <laughs> if you look at his face, it's just, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, but yes, that, Trump that, is horrifying. Just just naturally, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but the uh, but yeah, so it, it, that was created, and it's a small world. Uh, that ride was created for the World's Fair. So the, these World's Fairs, which traveled the world, there was one in Melbourne with the exhibition building. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, they, you know, were to, to educate, I suppose, and to share knowledge. And I think uh, Disney, in his own American, quite corporatized way, was very much inspired by these in, in his theme parks. Uh, yeah. Nice segue. Thanks, Dan. So something Flavia and I have been working on over the last year and a half or whatever is, is looking at these world fairs, these expos, and in recently interest in the Melbourne one, and thinking about how to recreate them so that we can learn from the innovation, because these were temporary exhibitions. Flavia, do you want to...? Um, yeah, so the, the World's Fairs actually make a very important contribution to the, what we might call the history of innovation, um, because World's Fairs are perm, uh, ephem ephemeral, they're, they're temporary, and they usually don't have a budget. <laughs> um, so it's where architects and other designers can actually think outside the box and think beyond the possible because they only have to do something that's short, um, short and sweet. And then when you have that innovation for something temporary, then um, people learn from it for real permanent things. And so we're thinking, well, what if we could actually go to the world of tomorrow of 1964 and experience it then we'd learn differently because how you learn from documents and photographs and images, um, you know, is different to how you learn from experience and experience is really the best way to, to understand things. So it, it'd be great if we could all fly around in that little car that Frank Lloyd Wright um, had in his drawing and say, well, what, what's it like to walk around in Broadacre City? What's it like to walk around in a plug-in city? I mean then, you know, designers and thinkers could actually, rather than just be academic, um, would actually be able to experience stuff and say, okay, well, that doesn't really work. Let's tweak that floating flower in a different way, <laughs> you know. Yeah, my floating flower. So this is part of the research that we're doing at Swinburne is looking at, at recreating these kind of environments using VR or AR or, or even environments like the iHub to sort of visualise, we've got some space scientists, some astronomers working with us to do data visualisation because that's something they do really well. Um, we've got uh, architectural historians, we've got VR people, so, so that's some of the projects that are happening there and it's, it's quite exciting for us. Yeah. Is there, are there any other last questions? Yes. I'll just scoot over here. Um, I have a question. Uh, I don't know if any of you have any example or reference of a project or from science fiction or from the past in about cities being shaped by different cultures and getting together to, you know, like make a different kind of city from that perspective. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm, afraid, I'm afraid not, but um, I guess that's really up to um, cities and cultures to do. I mean, the closest example I can think of are informal settlements, things like favelas and shanty towns and, you know, the, the situations where out of necessity and need people spontaneously come together and bring things and, and, you know, create communities. And um, academics are actually doing a lot of learning from that as well. So understanding that informal settlements and the way people actually just group together and spontaneously form communities has become an important academic topic. But it's not, it's not something that is thought of because all of these ideas are really top-down. They're top-down, they're like one person imposing one um, vision of control over chaos, whereas what you're saying is almost how order comes out of chaos, which is a little bit like the example I gave about Roman traffic. So in a way, it's not really possible for that to happen because all of these visions are actually about one single concept of control coming from above. Whereas what you're saying is, is the exact opposite, is how somehow human beings out of necessity or um, being in the same place or having the same problems at the same time all kind of band together to form their own order. Um, 
I, I think in, in science fiction there are some examples just because I suppose, uh, you know, even something like Blade Runner, you know, is, is, is very deliberately uh, supposed to be a kind of, uh, you know, uh, vision of the future where uh, the, the, the air quotes the West and Asia became ascendant, I suppose. And so there are quite strong kind of, you know, like Deckard goes and eats at noodle bars, right? And this is like the almost the only food seemingly in the in the in the city of the future. Um, and the same with like uh, Joss Whedon's Firefly, where they 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 only swear in Mandarin. So uh, <laughs> there are you know some some cross pollinations, I suppose, in science fiction. Even uh, a film from earlier this year, which is based on a manga, um, Alita: Battle Angel. Um, yeah, I think is is yeah right right yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, um, my comment comes also from this uh, necessity of the cities being able to change very rapidly because uh, cities are becoming a lot more diverse than before, I guess, uh, apart from, I don't know, other times like uh, Roman Empire, for example, where there was a huge diversity, but the model of the city was imposed by the Romans. So um, in these times, I've been thinking a lot about how are we gonna live together? You know, like cities are just being forced to change. And I haven't been able to see much of a reference from history or other things and how are we gonna live together? Okay, are you looking at I think there's uh, there's quite a bit of uh, free movement going around, like uh, exploring different pathways of living that, that is happening. Um, I've heard uh, a couple of maybe about 20, 25 years old uh, per people they were thinking of um, buying an old classroom, and apparently you can transport them into somewhere. Um, there's also people that live in the uh, a, a walking trail of Appalachian. Appalachian uh, uh, trails in America. So, and, and we've got the gypsy um, happening that has been for a long time and hasn't stopped. So, but yeah, so apart from the centralized uh, or, you know, the top-down kind of system, we also have the, 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 the new free system that is people exploring at the moment. I mean, I wonder how that impacts and there's also intentional communities, um, so people are actually um, getting together to buy, you know, plots of land and um, all meeting each other and deciding to, I mean, a little bit like hippie communes, but they're sort of like more middle class educated version of hippie communes. Um, Oh, right, okay, so, um, and so another way that people are thinking about living together is through intentional communities, but unfortunately they tend to be the same class and colour of people. Um, so it's not quite what you're saying with the idea of the mix. But um, if you did ask for an example from history, you did actually mention the Romans. And the Romans, yes, they did, you know, rape, pillage, destroy most of the Mediterranean and impose their order on it. But they were the most culturally tolerant, one of the most culturally toler tolerant um, imperialists that, that we actually have in history because they um, didn't impose any kind of religious ban. Anyone could follow any religion they wanted. Um, so, you know, there was, there was that. I mean, yep, yeah, as long as you say you're Roman, that's fine. Um, you can follow whatever religion. So they were, you know, there was... Um, the Roman cities were actually very multicultural and it was encouraged because um, it was needed for trade and all of that kind of stuff and you have a whole lot of mixing of cultures and people and hybrids and all of that kind of stuff. In fact, the word hybrid comes from a person born out of people from... a person from two different um, nationalities. That's where the word hybrid comes from. So there you go. And now it's a car. <laughs> okay. A smart um, car. A smart car for a smart city, for a smart person living in a smart city. So my program is called Future Spaces for Living. I'm wondering if it should be Future Living for Spaces. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. And then there's this whole thing about the spaces we design. Does that determine how we behave and live or do we behave and live and then the spaces get designed for us? So the ongoing... Question. Question of, of architects and what they have to think about. So anyway, sadly, we've come to the end of our time um, and it went really fast. 
And it was fun. I hope you had fun too. Um, I have here some postcards about the Smart City Institute. If you want to read a little bit more about what we're doing there, there's actually a really high-tech QR code. And if you have a smartphone, you can just point it at that little doobie and it will take you straight to our website. Isn't that clever? <laughs> okay, so thank you all for coming. Was, thank you. Can you hand them out, so just see my PhD student here and she will give you a postcard. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.